Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. Hey, Southeastern family, how are we doing tonight? It's kind of nice, evening chapel, sort of like evening church. I grew up going to evening church, kind of more laid back, and it's always good to be at chapel. Uh, with my um, seminary family, uh, whether it's outside or inside. I, I was actually in some ways hoping to, to preach outside. I've been doing that uh, in my church now for months, ever since late spring. It's a joy. And of course, you know, there's a, a long history of open-air preachers. I mean, all the way from Jesus himself to George Whitfield always imagine myself standing on this open plain preaching to tens of thousands of people, you know, without the use of a microphone. But then again, I've been told I'm no George Whitfield, so I guess I'm glad I'm here with you. Though it is new, honestly, for preachers in 2020, we've never preached before a room full of masked people before. I feel like I'm preaching at a bank robber's convention. It's a bit of a disadvantage for the preacher because we teach our students to, you know, look at the faces of your audience and see if they're interacting and, you know, adjust if necessary. I have no idea. So, but the advantage is yours. You can smirk at me tonight. You can make all kinds of faces. As a matter of fact, I was thinking today, if you're a student and if you have a a classroom, a class this semester, stick your tongue out at your professor he'll never know. He'll never know. And so it's a perfect opportunity. You know, you'll never have an opportunity like this. We, uh, we're in Second Peter this semester, and we're dealing with the whole book, which I appreciate so much of Southeastern's commitment, not just to expository preaching, but expository preaching through books of the Bible. And I really think that is the best way to go about proclaiming God's word. You know, by God's kindness in my ministry, I've been at my church 22 years, uh, I'm preaching currently through the book of Revelation, and when I'm done, I will have preached through every book of the Bible in uh, my tenure. Of course, my only regret is I don't have another 22 years to get it right the second time. I'll just have to make do. But, but tonight, I, I want us to look at Second Peter 2, the middle part of verse 3, and I want us to think through these themes of God's judgment and rescue. So kind of put in your mind God's judgment and rescue. Let me ask you this important question. When was the last time you felt like God wasn't doing what he was supposed to do? When was the last time you felt like God was not doing his job. Now, you might be thinking, never. I would never think that of God. Well, then let me ask you another question. When's the last time you complained? When's the last time you complained? Because what's in our heart when we find ourselves complaining is basically we're telling the sovereign ruler of the universe, you're not doing your job like you should. And to be honest, we can do that. It's pretty easy to be an armchair quarterback. Pretty easy to think that we might have a thing or two to 
tell God. But the fact of the matter is that God knows exactly what he is doing. And we should never tell him how to do his job. And that really is the basis of 2 Peter chapter 2. If I had a main idea for this passage, I, I would say it's, it's something like this. Our Lord knows how to judge the unrighteous and at the same time preserve the righteous, those who have by faith claimed Jesus Christ. Our Lord knows how to judge the righteous and at the same time rescue us who desire righteousness. Or just to put it more frankly stated, the Lord knows how to do his job. You and I just need to focus on our jobs. As we pick up in the middle part, this pericope starts halfway through verse 3. We're going to see God doing his job. Peter says, for their judgment from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them into pits of darkness reserved for judgment... And he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. Now, Second Peter, it's a fascinating little book, small but challenging to interpret. It's, in many ways, it's like Jude. A lot of similarities, a lot of comparisons to Jude's little book and Peter's little book. The smallest of the letters tend to be the hardest to interpret. We just don't have a lot of context. And, and to be honest, I was talking about this with your president a little while ago. Second Peter 2, some of those passages are places where most preachers just prefer not to even delve into. There's some real hard sayings in here. But as often is the case that some of the purest gems in the Bible are mined out of the deepest of shafts, and, and Second Peter's treasures are worth the labor of our exegesis and our study. And I think there's, there's an important theme running through 2 Peter that I just want to call the way of righteousness. The way of righteousness. 2 Peter chapter 1, um, God uh, has provided to us everything that we need for life and godliness. The true, the true knowledge of him. He has given us this way of righteousness and the Holy Spirit has provided as he carried along the prophets of old, the scriptures which tell us the way of righteousness. Later in chapter three, we'll, we'll see uh, this assurance that Christ will return. He will provide for us a new heaven and a new earth. And those who have followed the way of righteousness, those who have ended righteous, they will enjoy heaven 
forever. In chapter 2, Peter is dealing with the present problem facing the church, and that is the problem of false teachers who've crept in. And um, Peter is exhorting us to be aware of them and to avoid following them, being tempted by their false teaching. These bad teachers, these bad examples were peddling a false gospel. They didn't care about the return of Christ, didn't care about any physical return of Jesus. And if there's no physical return of Christ, no problem with some physical final judgment. They just didn't even care about that. All they cared about was themselves, indulging their immoral appetites, getting others in the church to follow their leadership. They were promoters of unrighteousness, even though they knew the way of righteousness. The most dangerous of teachers are not the ones ignorant of righteousness. They are the ones that know the way of righteousness and yet promote a way of unrighteousness. And so God, being God, must judge them. And so at the end of verse 3, their judgment, these false teachers, it's not new. No, their judgment is from long ago. God is an idol. It's not asleep. Their destruction is not asleep. God has sovereignly planned and promised the judgment and destruction of the ungodly ever since sin and sinners invaded his creation. These false teachers who've crept into the church are not going to get away with anything. As a matter of fact, their day in court has already come. It was determined long ago. God didn't miss anything. He didn't fall asleep on the job like uh, uh, the, the false god Baal who, who the, his prophets tried somehow to resurrect or, or, or awaken from his slumber in 1 Kings 18. No, our, our God doesn't sleep according to Psalm 121 and 4. He always keeps his people and he always keeps his promises. These bad teachers who had crept into the church were trying to get other Christians to imitate their immoral lifestyle, to mimic their self-centered desires. They didn't want them to worry about things like righteousness and God's judgment. We have that today. They were telling folks, just don't worry about a physical return of Christ. Don't worry about final judgment. And so Peter uses some biting irony here. They're not believing in final judgment, but they've already been judged. And they've already been judged guilty. The verdict has already been given. They are simply awaiting their forever incarceration in a future fiery prison called hell. And now Peter is going to set out to argue why that's true. He's going to use four conditions, four analogies, four conditional statements. Now, the first three are analogies that would demand judgment from a just God. Right? We want justice. 
we have to also want judgment. No judgment, no justice. And so the first three analogies demand judgment from a holy God. The fourth is rather than God judging, it's God's displaying his mercy and his grace in providing rescue for those who desire righteousness. And, and, and basically, here's how these analogies work. Peter is sort of making um, an a fortiori argument, which is simply stated, if this is true or if these things are true, then all the more this is true. That's, that's how the argument works. So is, if this is true, oh, then all the more this must be true. That's basically what he's doing here. And in reference to the false teachers being judged. So the argument is, if God is willing to judge unrighteous angels and send them to destruction, and if God is willing to judge an unrighteous earth and send it to global destruction, and if God is willing to judge an unrighteous culture and completely obliterate it, then how much more is, is God going to judge those false teachers who invade Christ's church telling lies about Christ and about his return? How much more of a fiery judgment will they experience at the second coming of Christ? So Peter is going to take us all the way back to the first book of the law tonight the book of Genesis, and he's going to make these three analogies of God's judgment against the unrighteous. Now, the the first analogy, just to be quite honest, is the most challenging because it involves some conjecture as to exactly what Peter is referring to. Verse 4, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, if you, uh, if you look in Genesis, you're going to have a hard time finding that exactly. But I think Peter actually is referring to Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4 here, but more likely as that narrative was passed along through Jewish tradition. And even that story was embellished, ended up being a story of Jewish tradition that if you want to read about it, you can find in an apocryphal book called First Enoch. And I Google it. It's actually a very dramatic story when you read First Enoch about these demons who are filled with lust and they end up in their lust cohabitating with beautiful earthly women and They're monster-like creatures that result bloodthirsty ones, and it goes on and on. And Jude may be referring to the same traditional story. And of course, they would have been familiar with that. And, And as a result of this interaction with these unrighteous 
angels. God then judged them and he chained them and he threw them into the deepest part of hell awaiting final judgments. Now, we all know that first Enoch is not inspired, but we also know Peter's words are, and the argument that he's making is definitely inspired. That if God is willing to judge even angelic beings, how much more is he willing to judge false teachers in the church? That's the point. That's the point. And if immoral angelic beings, demons, lead others to immorality, resulting in God's forever judgment of them, how much more if false teachers lead people into immorality. How much more will they be judged? The second analogy has to do with the great deluge, the great flood at the time of Noah. Again, Peter simply says, if God is willing to judge the entire earth by way of a flood, and if God is willing to judge an unrighteous world because of its immoral behavior, and if he's only willing to spare only one righteous preacher named Noah, along with his wife and his kids, then how much more will he judge those who peddle unrighteousness in the church? Those false teachers in the church who oppose the message of preacher Noah, a preacher of righteousness, who, by the way, Noah's proclamation of righteousness makes Noah a type of Christ. May we all be preachers of righteousness like Noah. And the third analogy, again, is found in Genesis, now chapter 19, dealing with Sodom and Gomorrah. If, if God is willing to, to judge an immoral culture, Sodom, Gomorrah, and reduce it to a pile of ashes, then how much more is, is God willing to, to judge false teachers that come into churches peddling immorality and acting as if it's acceptable? I mean, that, that was the problem with Sodom and Gomorrah. They thought their perverse, immoral lifestyles were acceptable. They thought their homosexual lifestyle was acceptable to God. And it wasn't. And so God judged the city, <clears throat> violently sending, sending fiery judgment down from heaven to destroy it. And Peter says <clears throat> that even the vestiges of those burnt cities, now ash heaps, are still present. God is leaving us an example. If I'm willing to do that, I'm willing to judge. God says if, if I'm willing to judge ungodly, unrighteous angels and ungodly, unrighteous earth, ungodly, unrighteous cultures. How much more since my son has come and established the church when people creep into his church and denounce him, how much more am I willing to judge them? I'm not asleep. And I know how to do my job. I'm simply preserving them for the final judgment. And these 
false teachers whom Dr. Shaddix, I believe, so clearly and eloquently described as those who come into the church smuggling destruction and scandalizing the gospel and swindling believers. I wish I could say ended with Peter's a writing, but, but it did not. No, as a matter of fact, false teachers have been creeping into the church of Jesus Christ now for over 2,000 years, spreading lies about Christ and, and his gospel. It's been happening for as long as there's been a church. And false teaching is much more contagious and deadly than the coronavirus will ever be. I mean, there's a long history of it, unfortunately. From the false teachers that Peter and, and Paul faced to, to the false teachers in the early church who told lies about the nature and the person and the work of, of Jesus Christ to the, to the, to the swindlers who, who, who took over the Roman church and, and made its leadership nothing more than a mafia-type banking industry, demanding that people pay for their salvation, extorting them that they might make it to heaven one day? To the revivalists like Charles Finney who hawked a gospel that did not demand a work of the Holy Spirit in, in order for someone to be converted? To all of the power of positive thinking panhandlers and the prosperity gospel charlatans after 2,000 years of false teaching, the stinking residue of it can be seen in every local church, including mine. History leaves a residue. And it will not be until Jesus returns that he finally cleans up his church, promising that he will eventually wash us with the water of his word and present us to himself as a glorious, beautiful, holy, and righteous bride. Excuse me for that diatribe. I'm an Italian Reformed Baptist preacher, and anytime I can put down the mafia, the Roman church, and Charles Finney, I try to do so. False teachers exist. And we need to identify them. And we especially, who want to be ministers of God's word, we need to protect others, especially if you're a pastor. You must protect your flock from them. In 1523, Huldrych Zwingli preached a sermon to the city council at Zurich entitled, Who's a True Pastor? <laughs> that day, this sermon needed to be preached. And he did it as an encouragement to those who really were ministers of God's word under much persecution. But he, he gave a long list of, of what he called marks of a wolf, marks of a false teacher. I just condensed this. Here's some of the list. Those who would claim positions of leadership in the church but never really teach God's word, false teachers. 
Those who teach according to their sinful desires rather than the desires of God found in his word. False teachers. Those who teach God's word but still allow for tyranny and oppression to remain. False teachers. Those who do not obey or practice what they teach. False teachers. Those who do not pay attention to the poor, the oppressed, or the burdened. False teachers. Those who gather wealth and labor mainly to keep their money purses supplied. False teachers. Those who abuse doctrine and fail to implant the deep knowledge and love of God into the simple childlike faith of their congregants. False teachers. And he had them then and we have them today. Now what we must do with all of this is believe God hadn't missed any of this. He sees it. And he is actually preserving a terrible day for these false teachers. Let God do his job. We need to do ours. You see, the Lord knows how to judge the unrighteous. <laughs> what we need to focus on is making sure we've been rescued from our unrighteousness. So I take you to the fourth conditional clause, verse 7. The last condition, the last if, then. And if, think back to the time of Sodom and Gomorrah, now with Lot and his family. And if he rescued, there's the key word, rescued righteous Lot when he was oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. Those are the immoral men of Sodom and Gomorrah. Here's Peter's interjection, you see, for by what Lot saw and heard, that righteous man, while having to live among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. And the Lord saw the righteousness in Lot, and even though he was the only righteous one in Sodom and Gomorrah by way of Abraham's request, the Lord was willing to rescue him while judging the unrighteous. God knows how to do both. And if the Lord knows how to rescue the righteous while preserving judgment for the unrighteous, here's the blessing, verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue us, the godly from temptation, and at the same time keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, especially those who indulge in the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Peter is telling us, hey, you know what? God knows what he's doing. He sees righteousness. and He knows those who want to pursue it. And for those who do desire it, he will preserve and protect you while he is judging the unrighteous. You know, Lot made a terrible decision to live in Sodom. He chose the easier place he thought to live, leaving Abraham up in the hill country. He didn't recognize how he would constantly be confronted by the immorality in the city. Sometimes it bodes better for the country pastor than the city pastor. The sin of Sodom was a constant torment to Lot's soul. That's not a bad thing. 
I hope you feel that in our culture, in our country today. There should be sort of a constant torment that we experience with all the immorality in our country. But at the risk of the welfare of his family, when the foreigners came in, he didn't know they were angels. He was willing to risk his family to obey the law, which is to love the foreigner and love your neighbor as yourself. And in doing that, he is showing or displaying his righteousness. And like Noah, it was just Lot and his daughters that escaped destruction. God rescued them. So Peter says, finally, if God is willing to rescue Lot from temptation, how much more is he willing to rescue us, his children, from temptation? And at the same time, keep the unrighteous under his thumb of judgment. You know the Lord knows how to rescue you. But Jesus did it on the cross. He went to the cross to rescue you from your unrighteousness and that by faith in him, he might clothe you with his righteousness. He knows how to do that and he has given you his spirit so when the temptation comes, you will find a way out. 1 Corinthians 10 and 13. No temptation has overtaken you. That's not uncommon to others. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with temptation, he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure, not just endure in that moment, but endure for a lifetime. Through faith in Christ, through the help of the Holy Spirit, you can find and live the way of righteousness. And you don't have to commit immoral acts. You can, as Peter encouraged Titus, you can deny ungodliness. You can deny it. And we don't have to play armchair quarterback with God because God is busy rescuing people. And we should be about the business of being used by God to rescue people let's just worry, let God worry about final judgment. I remember when I was at my current church many, many years ago, I was a lot younger. And um, some of those first years were challenging. And I had made my fair share of leadership mistakes. And uh, I inherited a smaller church and wonderful people, but I had a few opponents, let's say. One guy in particular, and I'm saying this because now he's one of my dearest friends. I love him, and he's one of my biggest supporters. But back then, he was my adversary. He was my opponent. He could only find bad in what I was doing or trying to lead. He was constantly complaining. And I remember one Sunday, and it was after church, and people were leaving, and I was trying to greet them, and I was trying to serve them, and he comes rushing up to me right there in the foyer as people are going by us. He's complaining, complaining about this and complaining about that. And I don't recommend this as pastoral practice. I, I say this as God's protecting those who desire to be righteous. I stopped him and I said, hey, I had a question for you. What are you doing tomorrow? He said, I'm going to work. 
I said, where? Where's your workplace? He told me. I said, why? I said, because I'm showing up tomorrow at work. I said, why? Because I'm going to do your job. I'm going to be there tomorrow. Tell me what time. You don't even have to show up. I'm going to do your job for you. He looked at me and says, you don't know how to do my job. You got it. And by God's boldness, I looked him in the eye and says, and neither do you know how to do mine. So why don't you do yours and I'll do mine. And let's trust God with the results. Now, he might have swung at me. That could have been it for me. He actually paused, thought about it. He broke a smile. He said, you know what, you're right. I actually don't know how to do your job, and I'm never going to act like I do again. That's God's protection. (laughs) We've got enough to worry about than to worry about how God sovereignly rules his creation. Let's be about the business of rescue. Let God be about the business of judgment, okay? And to my colleagues, I think tonight would be a good time to recommit ourselves to be servants of the college students and the seminary students. These students desperately need to be trained to know God and the way of righteousness. And we need to encourage them not only to know it, but to live it. And if you're a student tonight, pursue the way of righteousness. And if God would grant you an opportunity to lead in any fashion in his church, you have to be able to to spot a false teacher and then be used of God to protect your people. And as we send you all over this globe, Ask that the Lord would use you as he continues to rescue people and rescue them from the fiery judgment that will occur when Christ returns. Let me pray for you. God, we are not going to tell you how to do your job. We thank you for knowing how to do it. And we are forever thankful and humble by the gracious rescue that we have through our faith in Jesus And through your spirit and through your word, you have shown us the way of righteousness. Father, it's a little bit hard for me to say this, but I want to thank you for preserving false teachers for the day of judgment. I know this brings your holy nature glory, and I want to thank you for rescuing many who are unrighteous the blood of your son. Father, if you would through us, rescue many more. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit scbts.edu.